All right. So that wraps up the interview with Matthew. We hope you guys all enjoyed it. I know we had a great time filming it. And as I said in the interview, Matthew will be back probably about the week or a few days before the NHL playoffs start. And then he'll give us updates throughout the playoffs. And he's also going to talk baseball with us every now and then too, because he pays a good bit of attention to baseball. So that's now going to lead us into the NFL, a topic we did not talk about with Matthew. And the first thing I want to bring up is Julian Edelman's retirement. So looking at some of his stats just for his career, all time, he's had 620 receptions, 6,822 yards. He's had 36 touchdowns. He's had a couple throwing plays, a couple throwing touchdowns. And with his highest season being seven total touchdowns and his highest season being 1,117 yards. And the biggest kind of question that's been asked since he did retire is, is he a Hall of Famer? And I'll kind of get into my point soon after this, because I think all you have to do is say, Heinz Ward's not in the Hall of Fame. That's really all you got to say, but I'm going to hand it off to Drew here first. So do you think Julian Edelman should be in the Hall of Fame? And I guess just give me, in your opinion, like an opinionated recap of his career. Personally, I don't think that Julian Edelman should be in the Hall of Fame. But I also, with that being said, I think he had a really outstanding career. You know, I mean, I think he's a great athlete. We've seen that, you know, that size athlete doesn't always prosper in the NFL, but he found a way to get it done. So for me, I think this run like a little off Broadway Hall of Fame for guys under six feet, you know, he, yeah. he would be in it. But, but I mean, I think he had a great career. I think he has, I mean, he's got Super Bowls. He's got all the accolades he got. So, I mean, great football player, has some Pro Bowls, has some first team all pros, but I would not put him in my Hall of Fame personally. And I just don't think that he affected the championship winning teams enough for him to be like wow okay julian julian edelman is a hall of famer because when you play with tom brady unless you are the best receiver in football those years it's hard to say okay you're a hall of famer you know because tom brady really takes over a lot of that when you play in his scheme with bill belichick or belichick scheme with tom brady so it's just difficult for me to say yeah let me take Julian Edelman in my Hall of Fame, but I still think he's a great player. I still think he was had an outstanding career, and I'm him in 12 seasons getting all the accolades that he got. I think it was well deserved, but not a Hall of Famer in my book. Yeah, I don't have him as a Hall of Famer either. I think he had a great career. I mean, he started at Kent State as a quarterback in college, and then came yeah. to the NFL and ended up becoming just a shifty wide receiver, great slot guy. But so there's been an argument that's, or not an argument, but a comparison that's being made between him and Calvin Johnson, not at a talent level, but to the aspect that, well, we all know how great Calvin Johnson was, but he never did anything in the playoffs, literally nothing because they didn't make the playoffs. They weren't a good team. And, but people are saying, well, Edelman was great in the playoffs. So you're looking at Calvin Johnson, just regular season, but he never went to the playoffs. 
while Julian Edelman had like very good and solid regular seasons and great playoffs with uh, three Super Bowl rings in there too, which I can understand that argument, but I don't think the Hall of Fame is strictly based on playoffs. I think it's just a career, just like accolade in general. And if you look at his career, I just don't think he has the numbers. Because first of all, I think Wes Walker, who played a very similar role to Julian Edelman before him, even though Wes Walker got unlucky, he didn't win any Super Bowls. He lost two with New England and one with Denver. I think Wes Walker, talent-wise, was more talented than Julian Edelman as a slot receiver in there. And then besides that, though, Heinz Ward isn't even in the Hall of Fame yet. And I don't think there's any way you can have Julian Edelman in the Hall of Fame before Heinz Ward. And also, on top of Julian Edelman, even though, yes, he was hurt last year for a good bit of the season, we saw what happens when he doesn't play with Tom Brady. He played six games where he only had 21 receptions and 315 yards and zero touchdowns. I think Tom Brady made Julian Edelman's career a lot more than Julian Edelman made his own career. Like if Julian Edelman would have gone to say, like just let's throw Seattle out there, or even just a place with a subpar like normal quarterback, like a Tennessee, maybe with Ryan Tannehill, I don't think Edelman would even be in the conversation for making the Hall of Fame. What do you think about that? I think it's I think it's hard to to say that considering oh how bad Cam Newton played too. Because the the comparison between Cam Newton and Tom Brady is light years from each other based on how good Tom Brady was in New England and how bad Cam Newton was there. Yeah. You know, yeah, he played mm-hmm. six games. He only had 315 yards, and he only had 35 fantasy points, which that's not, not too good if you're a fantasy football player or fan no. player. You are upset with that season. If he had that in a game, you're, you're a little bit better, happy. You're definitely psyched about 35 from a slot receiver. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's hard to say that Tom Brady made him, but I definitely think Tom Brady helped him. Yeah, I for think, sure. I think if if even a mediocre quarterback, maybe he doesn't have 600 or 6,822 yards, but he's definitely in that 5,000 yard range, which again, I'm not saying that he should be in the hall of fame anyway, or shouldn't just uh, in my opinion, he still shouldn't be there anyway. So 5,000 yards knocks him down a little bit more. So, you know, and, and he was in an offense that didn't really run deep ball patterns too much. And when they ran them, he wasn't the guy that got to catch the deep ball. You know, he was the little drags and slants and run over the middle, sacrifice your body. So, I mean, again, great receiver. I think Tom Brady definitely helped him a lot. Yeah. I don't want I don't want to say that Tom Brady made Julian Julian Edelman. And to the Wes Welker point, I definitely think that Wes Welker was an outstanding slot receiver. I think Julian Edelman was as well. But I can agree that Wes Welker probably takes the the better in my head by a smidge. Yeah, because I want to ask you. So I have two more points I want to bring up. So the first one kind of arguing the Wes Walker to Julian Edelman talent-wise. Let's say we reverse their roles. Julian Edelman plays in the span and has a career that was, well, not the career exactly, but the no Super Bowls like that Wes Walker had 
yeah. he wouldn't even be considered for the Hall of Fame. But if Wes Walker at his normal career plus three Super Bowls, I think that's a pretty fair shoo-in for a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely can see Wes Welker being in the Hall of Fame if he has rings. Yeah. You know, and I think that's that, just kind of my thing I'm trying to make. It's just the talent. Oh, oh, I just, oh, yeah. No, I mean, well, not, 9,900 yards. You basically have 10,000 yards to almost 7,000. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you have to figure out what means more to you. You know, Wes Welker has more touchdowns. Wes Welker has more catches. He has more yards. So, I mean, you have to think about what makes the difference. You know, Wes Welker in the playoffs was not as good as Julian Edelman, you know? So I, I would agree that strictly based on career stats, don't break it down into regular season and postseason and this and that and the other thing. Just say his career. Wes Welker with even one Super Bowl ring is a Hall of Famer. With three, yeah. I think he's an easy, easy first ballot into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, and I think an easy way to look at it too is the Hall of Fame supposed to be the great. It's supposed to be the best of the best. So if you're even oh, having yeah. an yeah. argument this in-depth about a player, then they probably should not make it. But the last thing I want to say yeah. yeah, is you compare Julian Edelman to, like I said, Heinz Ward is still yet to be in the Hall of Fame. Julian Edelman, 620 career receptions. Heinz Ward, 1,000 career receptions. Julian Edelman, 137 games played. Heinz Ward, 217 games played. Julian Edelman, 6,822 receiving yards. Heinz Ward, 12,083. Julian Edelman, 36 touchdowns on a career. Heinz Ward, 85 touchdowns in his career. And Heinz Ward's uh, yards per catch are higher and just everything's higher in general. So I think kind of like what I said, the whole Heinz Ward comparison, if he's not in, Julian Edelman shouldn't be in for the stats I just said. And the Hall of Fame is meant for great players. And if we're having an argument this in-depth and talking about Julian Edelman this much, and if he deserves it, then he probably doesn't. At least in my opinion, that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna knock that point. I, I personally have no opinion about Heinz Ward, strictly due to the jersey that he wore on Sunday nights. <laughs> but if you strip that down and just throw him as a receiver, if I'm looking at numbers, not who they played for, not names, nothing. I mean, you can definitely tell that this is a better receiver by far. If yeah. Heinz Ward's not in there, it's – it's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no real way to go around <laughs> it other than just directly and say, if Heinz Ward's not in the Hall of Fame, Julian Edelman stands no chance of being in the Hall of Fame. Exactly. And, yeah, and Heinz Ward has Super Bowls as well. So unlike kind of like how we're talking about um, Wes Walker, how he doesn't have Super Bowls, Wes Walker is, or I mean, I'm sorry, Heinz Ward is a two-time Super Bowl champion. So just one behind Julian Edelman. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. Heinz Ward, two-time well, Super both... Bowl champion. He was a Super yeah. Bowl MVP, pro bowlers, all pro teams, even all the way back to when he was in college at uh, University of Georgia. He was first team all SEC multiple times. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's that's how I feel about that. So going to our next topic, the team that – Tom Brady now plays for, used to play for the Patriots, now plays for Tampa Bay. 
uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Detroit Lions, Seattle Seahawks, and Denver Broncos are four teams that said they will not be participating in voluntary workouts. And essentially, like, banning them is not the word, but they're essentially just, they're just not doing them is what's going to happen. And so there's been multiple different aspects, the way people have looked at this. Like, I was watching First Take this morning, and Max Kellerman, who we all kind of know doesn't have the greatest of opinions all the time. But he was talking about how the NFL should make it be mandatory to be vaccinated so then all these guys can go and yada, yada, yada. But then they also had on Teddy Bruschi and Stephen A. And were like, hey, even though we got the vaccines, like you can't tell people what to do with their body. Like you can't do that. And so it's kind of still just a <laughs> sticky situation. And it's a very just it's just it's going to vary team by team. So, like, I guess my question to you is if you were a GM coach owner like that whole type of thing how would you go about off-season workouts and just what's your opinion on off-season workouts in general during covid i'll say this first before i dive into that i want to take a second and say that this is the problem with that main media outlet of kellerman and even or um yeah kellerman and then uh, who's the other guy? Stephen A. and his partner. You Stephen just... A. is with Max Kellerman. Yeah, that's okay. Okay. I was just making sure that was the right guy. <clears throat> so Stephen A. and Max Kellerman, those guys, they're slightly hypocritical in what they say. So Stephen A. was on side with making LeBron get the vaccine in the NBA. Max Kellerman was against it, saying it's his it's his body. He gets to choose. He shouldn't have to do that. That's that man's choice. And now the NFL starts to roll around and they flip sides. Max Kellerman's making and saying everybody needs to get it. And then Stephen A saying, ah, oh, no, you don't have to get it. Yada, yada, yada. So to me, you need to pick a side. You need to stick with it. You know what I'm saying? I, I mean, mm -hmm. that's where the problem is also is drawing the line because these players don't know what to do. They're trying to decide what's best for them, their families, the people closest to them, the team, the league. They don't know just as much as you and me don't know. And Stephen A. and Max don't know. So pick a side, stick on that side, and live with it. Don't get to flip-flop your choices just because you have a morning show that millions of people listen to. Because that's the problem is you flip sides and that it gets everybody confused. Also, there's a hold on the vaccine. People are telling you not to get it because there's side effects that are deadly side effects. So be aware of that, everyone that's thinking about getting the vaccine. I don't know about now, deadly. It was six out of seven million people that got well, blood clot. Six out of seven I'm not, million. I'm not saying that you shouldn't get it if you want to get it. But if you get the one that is a blood clot and don't catch it. Yeah, it Johnson and Johnson. Yeah, I'm not getting it. I don't care if you get it. I don't care if anybody else gets it. Good for you guys that get it. I have no desire to get it. But on to the offseason. I was going to say, let's get to football. Honestly, uh, it's hard for me to say, yeah, I would make my guys come to a voluntary camp. I wouldn't, especially if we were NFL athletes and coaches and we just won the Super Bowl or we just made the playoffs or – we want a little time off and COVID is spiking or COVID is dropping or the vaccine is this or the vaccine is that. I, personally, COVID wouldn't play an impact in my mind. If you want to come and get some extra work, you should be doing it all off season anyway. After that first month of taking a break, you should be kind of back to work on your own pace. So to me, 
I'm not going to call a team voluntary practice and say, all right, everybody here. If you feel like you got something to work on, feel free to show up. But if Tom Brady at 44 years old doesn't want to show up to voluntary practices after winning his seventh Super Bowl, I'm not going to make him. And I don't have a, I, uh, that's my take on it. If you want to come and get extra work in, feel free. But when mandatory practices start, be there. Yeah, well, it's just I feel like it's different for somebody like Tom Brady than compared to like the younger guys, because when you're a younger guy, if you don't show up to these voluntary workouts like you remember your freshman year of high school, I'm sure with baseball workouts, they were yeah. voluntary, but you knew you needed to be there. Like there's like a stigma around it, like with these young guys, like they need to be there. <clears throat> and it's just it's just tough. And if you're a team, I mean, I think you still host them and you kind of just you just kind of have to leave it up to the players. I say you still have them. I wouldn't go the route that Seattle, Denver, Tampa Bay, and Detroit went of just totally getting rid of them. I would still keep them and just saying, hey, coaches and players that feel comfortable, show up. But then when we get to actual training camp, like you guys all better be there. So we'll have to see if any more teams follow suit with that. But if I was a GM or coach or whatever, I would still definitely have them as that option because as a coach, a lot of these coaches and GMs and owners, by the way, and players, if they wanted to, could have been vaccinated by now. So say if there are people that want to be and have been vaccinated and want to go and practice, they should have that option to go and do that and feel comfortable. So we'll see how that goes though. I mean, that'll be a developing story as the spring and summer continues. So we now have progressed a little bit further in a free agency. It's not totally done yet, but we're definitely on the back end because the draft is starting to come up and everybody knows as a free agent, you want to sign before the draft because then they're just going to draft people that may take spots that you could have signed for. So we've had some, we've had some, I would call them maybe one top tier, maybe top tier and a bunch of other second tier guys uh, signed. So we've had James Connor from Pittsburgh signed in Arizona. We've had Jadavion Clowney go from Tennessee to Cleveland. We've had Giovanni Bernard go from Cincinnati to Tampa Bay. And then we've had Sammy Watkins go from Kansas city to Baltimore So I guess starting off is with the one guy who he hasn't had a tier one, I guess, career, but he still seems to have somewhat of the talent and playmaking. How do you feel about uh, Jadavion Clowney going from Tennessee to Cleveland on another one-year deal? Well, I mean, as a USC fan from birth. And student. And and student. I mean, it's always exciting to see him go and play for another team and be except when he comes into your year. division and he's going to be trying to kill Joe Burrow every yeah, but twice a year but, on Sunday. <laughs> but the big side effect to it is he may only play three games if he gets hurt, you know, <laughs> which is very it's likely. A, it's a lot of, a <laughs> lot of injury prone, which is very likely. And, and I'll, I'll take it back to even his college days here. I, I mean, the biggest thing that you saw with Jadavion Clowney year one and year two at the University of South Carolina was no plays off. Played every down, hit people hard. Everybody remembers the hit from the bowl game against Michigan. We all know it. We all live it in our minds weekly here at USC. That's just how it works. I was going to say, you might want to speak but, just for USC people there. <laughs> but the the year three, you kind of saw some plays being taken off. You saw the sluggish start. He got off the field a lot more instead of 100%. playing a hundred, instead of playing a hundred percent of the snaps, he played closer to 60 and 55% of the snaps, which mm-hmm. there's going to be teams where they need him to play 
70 to 80 percent of snaps if not more because there's going to be teams that are honed in on miles garrett they're going to feed that left side strong to make sure that miles garrett doesn't get a sack so to me is Genevieve Clowney the best and obviously with what was left yes he was but is he the net is he the option you want first comes to mind to be on the opposite side of miles garrett if he's only going to be able to play 40 to 45% of the snaps in a huge game, you know? Yeah. I don't, I think he's a difference maker when he is playing on a team like Cleveland, who has Miles Garrett, who has some defensive tackles that need attention. But when he's by himself, and we saw it in Seattle, when he's the only guy that comes off the edge and makes a huge difference, he doesn't impact the game because they're so caught on him. You see him take plays off. You see him kind of just sluggish around the edge. So I think what I'm looking for from from him to be a dominant edge rusher opposite of Miles Garrett is that fire again, if you will, the fire to kind of get going, get off the ball, make a sack, make a play, prove that you're still worthy of another one-year deal because you could be done after this year. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And if you just look at some of his stats just from last year, just, I mean, extremely disappointing. Only six quarterback hits all year, only four tackle for losses, only 19 total tackles, four solo, five individual, and zero sacks, which is what stands out to me more than anything. Zero sacks in Tennessee last year. And the year before that, in Seattle, only three sacks. And when you're a pass rusher, you need more than three sacks in the last two yeah. years. So they signed him to a one-year, $8 million deal, eight we had one year, $8 million deal. And I don't know if you also saw today, but he also talked about how it's going to be nice to finally get single covered on his side because they'll have miles Garrett on the other side. Like, excuse me. Did you forget you played with JJ Watt for the first like five or six seasons of your career? Yeah. Who was getting double or triple covered every single time. Like, I don't know if he's maybe just talking about the last two years in Tennessee and Seattle, but I hope he realizes like the greatness he was playing with when he was, with J.J. Watt in Houston at the beginning of his career. Otherwise, that's just an extremely ignorant and disrespectful comment on his part. But, yeah, I mean, I really like, as much as I hate Cleveland, I really like what they're doing over there defensively. I mean, they signed Josh Johnson, the safety from L.A. earlier, and then now Jadavion Clowney again. Cleveland's definitely uh, pushing for another, like, playoff run right here. And as much as I don't like them, like if they weren't in the AFC North, I'd be saying like, if it was like the Jaguars, I'd be like, Hey, good for them. Like they're yeah. going for it. So <laughs> trying to take the bias out of it, like, Hey, good for Cleveland. They suck for so long. Good for you, Cleveland fans. Have fun with it. So yeah, ride next, this wave while it lasts. Yeah, exactly. So the next guy we're going to talk about just for a split second is uh, James Connor going from Pittsburgh to Arizona. I knew Pittsburgh wasn't going to sign him back. They had kind of already said it, but great story. He's he has not played. This will be the first time he's ever played a home game outside of Pittsburgh. He grew or outside of Pennsylvania. Sorry, he grew up in the Lake Erie area, which is a couple hours away from Pittsburgh. Um, that's where he played his games there. Then he that's where he played high school. Then he played college at the University of Pittsburgh. Then was drafted, but in the third round by the Pittsburgh Steelers. This is the first time in a very long time he will not be playing in Pittsburgh. The last eight years, and so he's going to Arizona, where they let Kendron Kenyon Drake go to um, the uh, Las Vegas Raiders. I still want to call them the Oakland Raiders. I noticed that on the podcast a week ago when I was talking about John Gruden, when I was listening back to it, I called him the Oakland Raiders. 
<laughs> and um, with the Las Vegas Raiders now. But uh, so I'm I'm guessing he's gonna slide in to the starting spot. It's him and Chase Edmonds. It's gonna be him and Chase Edmonds, where Chase Edmonds is more of a shiftier, fast guy, where uh, James Conner can be, or more like he's not necessarily like a bulldozer, but he's more along those lines and power guys. So it could definitely be a good tandem. I mean that plus. DeAndre Hopkins and AJ Green and Christian Kirk and Kyler Murray. I think it was definitely a good signing for them. They got it for cheap too, but do you think he has like a, how big of an impact do you think he has with Arizona? Well, uh, I mean, in, in four years of the league, uh, personally, from being in his division and watching him play us and watching him play just the end division teams and his years, he has very up and down years, you know? Yeah, he gets hurt he a lot in, too. Yeah, and in 17, he didn't start a game, but he played in 14, which is, sounds about right for a rookie, 144 Wait, what yards. year did you say? 17. Yeah, that's when Le'Veon Bell was still there. That's why he didn't yeah. get any starts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then in 18, he got his first couple of starts. He started 12 of the 13 games that he played in, uh, 973 yards, which if you think he could have stayed healthy there, you probably see him break 1,000. You probably see him break 16 hundred yards from scrimmage and then he goes back down to 116 uh he just can't seem to stay healthy you know or 464 excuse me 116 carries and then he goes back up last year at 721 yards which is very good for 13 games but you need him there to make a difference for all 17 now 17 games yeah which i think that they're betting on him having a big year but if numbers stay true, he could have another 10-game, 400, 500-yard season, which they aren't paying him for. Mm-hmm. But I think if stays if he stays healthy, he could make a difference and could make a huge impact. If he doesn't stay healthy, they wasted money, and it looks kind of silly to get him. Yeah. But I hope – obviously, I hope he stays healthy. I hope now that I don't have to play him, I hope he's fine and he plays well. Yeah, they only signed him for a one-year deal, so they're not, like, locked up to him long-term. But you definitely – you can't ignore whether it's sports, life, or just anything. You can't ignore patterns. And it's been a very big pattern over the past couple years of just injuries. And while I'll miss him in Pittsburgh because he's born and bred there and everything, I'm hoping he goes to Arizona and uh, does well over there. So then now going to our next guy, we're going to look at another running back who went from your team – to now the Super Bowl champions, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I I love Giovanni Bernard going because he adds a perfect uh, compliment piece to Leonard Fournette, who's going to be your more uh, north-south type running back, like power guy, where Gio Bernard can be more a little bit more pass-catchy, be a little, be a little bit more shifty. And him and Leonard Fournette, I feel like, will complement each other well. And they still have, they still have Ronald Jones Jr. as uh, well over there. So yeah, that's Ronald, gonna be that's gonna be a loaded running back room right there. So how do you feel about that? Yeah, I still think that Ronald Jones will probably be the one just because he was the one this year and he did nothing to lose it unless mm-hmm. they see something in the preseason, the OTAs and stuff like that. As a Bengals fan, I hated to see him go. As a football fan and a Bengals fan also, I'm excited to see him go somewhere else just because it opens our backfield up. 
I think a third or fourth round pick, which you may see from the Bengals, is a running back this year. My uh-huh. projection is Trey Sermon from Ohio State stays in state and goes to Cincinnati. Uh-huh. Don't hold me to that, but I think it's a great a great thing for him. You know, I think that he struggled a little bit last year. He had his first fumble in a couple games. He had two and eight and nineteen, but he went like on a stint of no fumbles. But I just he wasn't to me in Cincinnati a piece that could have turned the offense into something we needed it to be. Mm-hmm. And with Joe Mixon coming back, hopefully he's healthy. And if he's not, we went and got we go get Trey Sermon. We turn that around. But with Giovanni, I'm excited to see him go to Tampa. Like you said, I think it's a great piece to add because both of those guys can catch the ball, but neither one of them there already are huge, like screen pass, catch the ball, go for 40-yard guys, which Giovanni is. But Giovanni can also hold the ball and run for 15 yards to carry. So I'm excited to see him go and do something different in a different scheme with Tampa Bay. I'm excited for him. Um, as a fan, you hate to see him go. But you're excited that he wins somewhere that you can hope he wins some games with. Yeah, for sure. I'm just extremely interested to see how Tampa Bay utilizes them all and uses them all because that's a lot of running backs that you could argue could all be starters on on like multiple different teams throughout the league between Fournette, Jones, and Bernard. So then going to the last guy we're going to talk about that is signed is Sammy Watkins, went from the Kansas City Chiefs to the Baltimore Ravens which I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. Actually, I do know how I feel about that. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. It was one thing, <laughs> it was one thing where like the Kansas City Chiefs offered Juju Smith-Schuster money, and if Juju would have left Pittsburgh, would have got to Kansas City, which would have made a load of sense. But I don't understand the whole uh, going from Kansas City with Patrick Mahomes to Baltimore where we know Lamar Jackson's not an eighth of the quarterback that Patrick Mahomes is because we saw wide receivers like T.Y. Hilton already say no to going there because they try to sign him and Antonio Brown years prior could have gone to Baltimore when he was a free agent when he was going through his struggles and so we know that like you kind of just let it speak for yourself if top wide receivers aren't going to this Baltimore team it's because of the quarterback and if I'm Sammy Watkins I don't know why I'm leaving because I've already shown I can't be a number one wide receiver when I was in Buffalo or the Rams either because one I get hurt or two, I just have an absolute bust of a season. Like his last few seasons, he's like his last three seasons, Sammy Watkins played 10 games in 2018, 14 games in 2019, and 10 games in 2020. So, and in that, and in those seasons, he went 500 and listen to these stats. Like this is not good. When I mean like up and down, like 519 yards in 10 games, and then only 673 yards in 14 games, you're telling me he had only 150 something extra yards and four more games in the season before. And then he dropped back down all the way to only 421 yards this past year and going three touchdowns, 2018, three touchdowns, 2019 and two touchdowns, 2020. I don't really understand it from either perspective because we all know Baltimore's had a huge wide receiver gap. And I don't really think this fills that gap or this is the best play for Sammy Watkins either. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely agree. If, if I were him, I would have found a way to go, to go back to the Rams and with uh, Goff, but Goff got traded. So then I would have found a way to get to the Lions because when he was with the Rams in 17 and with Goff, he had only 600 yards, but he had eight touchdowns. So, yeah. I, I mean, 
you kind of have to give what you want there. Honestly, my take on it is this. You aren't a number one. You're mm-hmm. still trying to be a number one on a mm-hmm. team that has proven they can't win any games outside of the regular season. Yeah. Why would you give up the possibility of wearing three, if not four rings by the time you decide to be done? You're already 27, so say 20, or we'll say 32. Four, three to four rings by the time you're done. Why would you give that chance up to go play with a guy who runs the ball more than he passes it? Yeah. You know, just because you have number wide receiver one next to your name doesn't boost your career in any way. It shows us how mediocre you are on other teams and how much they don't mm-hmm. need you, you know. But I, th- I would have stayed in Kansas City. Even 421 yards, you still were in the Super Bowl. You still were a help to your team enough to get them there. I, I mean, I think it's a bonehead move on him, but I also can see where he's coming from. If he goes and is the number one, then maybe if they throw more and if they switch up schemes, then he's the number one guy. He gets this, he gets that. But I don't see that happening. I think it was a bonehead move. I'd have stayed in Kansas City. You're going to win more games. You're going to win more championships, and you're going to be on a better team. Yeah, right. and the only thing I can really think of – well, first off, we know some guys, we hear in interviews after they retire, some guys aren't driven by Super Bowls or winning championships necessarily – it's just playing the game that they love and being able to get as much action as possible. But then also what I was thinking is because Juju Smith-Schuster, how Kansas City offered him, Sammy Watkins knows that that was his money that was getting offered to Juju. So maybe he felt a level of disrespect from Kansas City because they saw Juju, they saw um, Kansas City offered Juju multiple years for I think it was nine or 10 million a year. And maybe Sammy Watkins looked at what he was getting offered and it wasn't nearly amount to that. Maybe internally, even though he's not, Sammy Watkins may feel he's a better receiver than Juju or just oh, disrespected no. <laughs> in general. And he was just kind of like, all right, screw this team. Like, I don't want to be here anymore. They obviously don't have respect for me. And I'm going to go to a place where I can try to prove everybody wrong. That's really the only angle I can see it from. What are your thoughts just kind of on that? Like maybe real quick, just he kind of took that personal with the whole Juju contract offer. I, I don't know. I think you have to look at it realistically and know that you're not better than Juju. You're the third. You're behind Miko and you're behind Tyreek. If you don't want to win Super Bowls, I get the move, but it still may not be a better move. I would have tried again to find somewhere like Detroit that's going to actually throw the ball. Yeah. Lamar is just a run first quarterback, and we've seen that. I, I mean, I'm not saying he's terrible, as in Lamar. He'll be able to get you the ball, but you're not going to spike tremendously back to your 2015 season and have over a thousand yards. I yeah. don't see that possible in Baltimore. Yeah, well, like I said, we we see it. the wide receivers speak for themselves when none of them ever want to go to Baltimore because they know it's not a pass first offense and that it's not going to be as much fun for them as some of these other teams. So now moving into this is kind of what I have is like the top four free agents, essentially, or the four biggest names, maybe that have not been signed yet. So I want to start off with Melvin Ingram plays for the Los Angeles Chargers, actually has a house in Charlotte. He's from Rutherford County, which is in North Carolina. Um, The new house that he built was literally five minutes from my old house and where Drew lives now still. Yep. And um, so it seems like he's not going to go back to L.A. Otherwise, that deal would have been done. And for me, so we'll just kind of break him down as a player. He's a great pass rusher. He was a captain in Los Angeles, and it seems like he's a good leader. 
as well. But he wants to get paid, it seems, more than he might be worth. But I could see maybe the Jets going after him because Robert Salah is going to want a grinder that's going to come in, a physical guy, somebody that can implement his defense on the field and kind of be like that quarterback on the field that we talk about that linebacker spot, even though he's not a middle linebacker, he's an edge guy, maybe pass rusher. I could see him working with the jets because they obviously do need a pass rusher. And I just could kind of just see Melvin Ingram embodying. Cause like we saw, he's already a captain. He could come to New York, start off as a captain. I could kind of see him embodying that Robert Salah like defense mentality and kind of just being his guy and finishing his career off in New York and LA to New York's not a tough transition either Two huge markets. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely agree. I think the Jets would be a decent place. I think it'd be interesting there because of the first-year head coach. I think you're just kind of looking, like you said, at all kinds of people to fill spots and help you win some games. Um, being in the dev- the bottom of the division is always not where you want to be. And with the number one pick, you're or with the number two pick, you're most likely going to take what at the moment looks like Zach Wilson. So that being said, I think is a huge piece where I can see him going though. Also and stick with me on it is staying kind of close to home, if you will, in the Carolina Panthers. Okay. Right. Cause you have a five and 11 team. You just got Sam Donald. You have your pieces back. You have Shaq Thompson there. Hassan Reddick signs. Denzel Perriman is still there, who he played with in Los Angeles with the Chargers. But if you walk him down as an edge rusher, at times you could run him from that edge rush spot. And it takes over like your fourth linebacker almost, which I think he – and he has been in that position with the Chargers before. That's why I think the Panthers is a good spot for him. And a lot of young guys, a lot of people that can learn from Melvin Gordon and learn from how he plays the game fast, quick, and aggressive. I think it'd be a good place for him and a good move for the Carolina Panthers to try and keep him if you if you at home, if you will. Not considerably yeah, could- home, but I could see that happening. Yeah, I could see that happening too because they cleared up all that cap space for – when they thought they were going to trade for Deshaun Watson before all of this happened because Deshaun Watson's expensive, like his new contract kicks in next year. So they cleared all that out to push for him, which we obviously all know that's not happening anymore for reasons we're going to get into right now. But um, so they definitely would have the money to afford Melvin Ingram. And I definitely like that. I didn't even think about that, but I do like that as a team. Uh, So the next guy we're going to go into who he's only, he's 32, he's a little bit older, but I feel like he could still be a very valuable pass rusher and player for a team is Ryan Kerrigan from the Washington football team. Um, I don't know. I just like him as a player in general, just watching him. He's a grinder. Um, he's a hard worker. He's not a guy that's going to get pushed over. And I would think he, if I was a coach, like if I was Urban Meyer at Jacksonville, like I would want him kind of as like a culture setter. Like if I was a team that was still trying to develop a culture, and maybe not even a culture in general, but still just like a defensive culture. Ryan Kerrigan's a guy I would go after. I think he can be very effective and he could definitely help a team out. What do you think about just kind of Kerrigan? I mean, I I love him. Yeah. I think it's a, he's a great piece. Very underappreciated. Any, oh, Kerrigan. yeah. Any, any defense that can add Ryan Kerrigan's name to that roster just got a little bit better. 
You know, I mean, I think he's a great guy from when he entered the league to now. I don't think there's anybody that has played the game as true to form as Ryan Kerrigan. You know, he's always a little bit underrated, always a little bit underappreciated, but he continues to make plays. A place I could kind of see him going to make a push to try and get back to that 10 and 6 where they were his previous year is the Miami Dolphins. Okay. Like you said, Jacksonville, I'm going to go with the Dolphins because obviously you add a couple pieces on your defense. You get some pieces here, you get some pieces there, but Ryan Kerrigan is always uh, available. Even if you play him all 17 games or if you play him in 12 games or if you play him just a couple snaps here and there, I think he understands where – he is as a player at this point, which mm-hmm. I think, like you said, somebody to learn from. Nick Coe from Auburn is a was a rookie this year. I think that's a great person for him to learn from is Ryan Kerrigan. They have two really young defensive ends, and I think that they can really learn from Ryan Kerrigan, along with being on the same team as Emmanuel Agba. I mean, I think those are great people for the rookies to learn from to one day take over. Ryan Kerrigan's a piece for that defense, I think, can make a huge difference. And even the leadership role. Yeah, for sure. He's been a captain, I'm pretty sure, over in Washington, too. Yep. And, uh, yeah, he he could definitely be a very valuable piece to wherever he goes. So the next guy we're going to look at is um, Antonio Brown. So I think for Antonio Brown – Obviously, when you talk here, you can kind of say if I'm wrong, but I think it's kind of clear cut with maybe the two teams that he can go to. And obviously, he could go back to Tampa Bay where he's at with, uh, I don't mean to be sus when I say this, but it's kind of how it is. But with Daddy Tommy over there in Tampa Bay, because Tom Brady. Thanks for saying sus before. That makes it a lot better. Yeah, it does. You know, just forwarding there. But, um, because we see, we saw it happen in New England. We see it happen in Tampa. And Tom Brady literally has Antonio Brown live at his house because nobody can control this guy except for Tom Brady. Like Tom Brady is literally this guy's, this kid's dad. Like it's insane. <laughs> so I could see that happening, or I could see Baltimore happening because they talked a few years ago, and his younger cousin um, Marquise Hollywood Brown, who does not deserve the name Hollywood yet. I don't care if he grew up in Hollywood, Florida. That kid oh. is not done anything yet to deserve a nickname like that Uh, but I could see him going to Baltimore too but I know Russell Wilson's kind of pushed recently for the Seahawks maybe look at signing Antonio but I think it's kind of clear cut between Tampa and Baltimore in my opinion what do you have for that kind of out of the woodworks and maybe a a tad bit surprising if you will but hear me out on this Obviously, I don't think this is going to happen, but I think it could be a place for him to sneaky under the radar get to is the Minnesota Vikings. Okay. Now, you don't need a one or two. You have Adam Thielen and Justin Jefferson still there. But what's wrong with adding a winning pedigree Antonio Brown slot receiver? Yeah. You know, there's. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I still think they got a little bit of cap room. Sign him to a one-year deal. Don't put too much pressure on him, and just let him not run the team or run his way, but let him feel like he's 
independent while you keep an eye on him, if you will, to make sure he doesn't do anything stupid, that he stays within the rules, that he stays within the lines. I think he could help Minnesota be better than seven and nine next year. Yeah, if you take out all the off-the-field stuff and all the things that have kind of happened, like the way he screwed over Pittsburgh and screwed over Oakland at the time and just the way he did things, I could definitely see this being as a great fit, which is why I kind of just said Baltimore or Tampa because there's family ties to one and obviously Tom Brady at the other, and I think he has a very limited market. But if you take all that out and just look at it from a pure like football player talent perspective, I love what you just said about Minnesota. That would be a great pick because he could slot right there and be the slot guy and him training Justin Jefferson for the next two to three years, like while he's still developing before he really hits his like true prime in Justin Jefferson, you can definitely argue there's shades, a lot of shades of Antonio Brown type football and Justin Jefferson football. And I think from a developmental standpoint that that would be great. I just don't know if it happens because of the way things have worked out the last few years with other teams, but I love like what you just laid down right there. Thank you. I take pride in what I do here. <laughs> so then the last guy <laughs> we're going to look at is not the biggest fan of uh, Michael Crabtree or what we thought was the San Francisco 49ers <laughs> before we ended up just hopping ship and going <laughs> to the 49ers is Richard Sherman. So Richard Sherman's definitely on, I don't even want to say the back nine, maybe like the 19th hole of his career. <laughs> the back nine might be He's playing a new statement. He has stepped down and is playing from the red tees on his yeah, he's third go-round. He's point. playing the senior tees, yeah. So yeah. he's thirty. He's 33 now. Obviously, know what he did with the Legion of Boom in Seattle. We know he's been a solid fit in uh, San Francisco. But we also know how we talked about before, like him versus Patrick Peterson this late in his career. Peterson, we think, is going to be able to have a better career because he was man-to-man, a more man-corner, which can adjust better to different teams compared to where Sherman's been a zone scheme fit that doesn't necessarily translate to better teams. But a team I like a lot for Richard Sherman is staying out west and just going a little bit further east to the Las Vegas Raiders because I think him and John Gruden could get along well. Um, Just kind of a big alpha guy like John Gruden I feel like him and Richard Sherman just share a lot of like qualities together. And I think kind of like what I said about Melvin Ingram to the Jets, but even on a bigger and better scale, I think Sherman could be that guy for John Gruden on Vegas. And we know that their secondary is not the best. They have Jonathan Abrams, who's a young developing guy, but they could definitely use somebody to help mentor him and the secondary in general, which Richard Sherman could do. And I just think it would work. We don't expect Richard Sherman to put up numbers or be as great as he was before, obviously, but I think just in general from the locker room to just getting John Gruden's message across because Sherman just seems like the guy that really embraces head coach. I don't know. I just feel like Richard Sherman and John Gruden would work really well together, and I think he would just be able to help establish that um, just the foundation, not the foundation, but just the memo that John Gruden's essentially trying to get out to this Oakland or, geez, Las Vegas team. (laughs) I mean, I like it. I think that it's definitely a place where you could see him going. Um, the place I could pick out, the oldest player in this secondary is 28 years old. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're not a tall, not a big, not a real quick secondary, but all have the ability to learn from Richard Sherman. And I think that that is the New York Jets. Okay. I think all have the ability to learn from him. You're starting to see a lot of change in New York with this team right now. Marcus May is a huge piece. 
I think that they have a lot of pieces there to turn some stuff around with Elijah Campbell. Those guys are good. Brian Poole is on the opposite side of the ball of him. They have C.J. Mosley still. There's a lot of pieces there on that defensive side. I think you're missing one person from that secondary to learn from. After adding Carl Lawson this offseason, Vinny Curry, I think those are great pieces to add. But your secondary still is lacking, and you have the number two pick. You're going to need somebody to run that locker room. And I think right now you're looking to an offensive player to run it because of how slacking the offensive plays have been. But I think you mm-hmm. need to start looking to the defense. And I think Richard Sherman has been a leader before in and out of the locker room, on the field, in the locker room. I think that he can be that again for the, the Jets, even if it is a season or two. I think Richard Sherman has a good chance of landing in New York. Yeah, no, that's definitely a good pick, too. He could definitely send the message and embrace what Robert Salah would be doing, kind of like what Melvin Ingram, I think, could do, too. So... We'll see where these guys end up. We obviously don't know yet. All right, yeah, so here we go, Drew. Real quick before we move on to the next topic, um, we'll split it in half, two and two. Do you th- – or uh, we'll just go all four. Or no, we'll go two. Okay. We'll, we'll go two. Do okay. you think two out of the four of these guys signed before the draft, or do you think less than that? Like how, Or I guess the better question would be, how many of, the, do you guys, how many of these guys do you think signed before the draft compared to post-draft? I think one of them signs before the draft. Okay. Yeah. I don't think Antonio Brown will be signed before the draft. I don't think Sherman will either. I think it's going to be either between Ingram or Kerrigan. Cause I think a team's going to draft maybe wide receiver and cornerback and then be like, Hey, we bring in Sherman or something like that to be able to help like develop him over time. But I definitely yeah, agree with your one. Yeah. I think, I think Melvin Ingram is the one that signs prior just due to the fact that, if my pick and if my assessment holds true, the Panthers don't know where they're going with it. They mm-hmm. still think that they should look at a quarterback, a news flash for the Panthers and the head coach, Matt rule, a news flash probably shouldn't look at quarterbacks anymore. Unless you're looking for a backup, Sam Darnold needs to be the guy you need to start building confidence now. Um, so I think I would go get a, experienced veteran edge rusher and Melvin Ingram to kind of anchor and be the new voice on the team. Now we're going to transition into some MLB, some baseball talk. We are now in the second week of this very young season. A lot of it left to go, but we've already seen a few things that I feel like we can definitively say, like for the first thing we're going to talk about the New York oh. Nets are still royally screwing over Jacob <laughs> in his career, just royally screwing him over, continues to do it, done it in years past, feels so bad for the guy. And Drew, did you know he's already 33 years old? And I feel like just so much of his career has been wasted in this season. He's put up, he's pitched 14 innings, 21 strikeouts in those 14 innings, a .64 ERA. And he's on one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all you can do is laugh. You know, the Mets have never, ever done anything to help this man's career. Like, no. yeah, you can you can say they've gone and, and signed Francisco Lindor or drafted Pete Alonso or moved up Pete Alonso or done this or done that. That doesn't count. How about get him out of New York? How about you just – 
Gets that would help his career. A decent bit. Yeah. Helping his career would be playing for a team that can make the playoffs consistently. Mm-hmm. And at 33, unless he plans to be Nolan Ryan, he's coming to an end sooner than later. Yeah, he's not going to be throwing 98, 99 for too much longer. Yeah, I mean, it's surprising that he's throwing it now. Which Honestly, honestly yeah. good for you, Jacob DeGrom. Yeah, but for sure. That is, not just, a, that is not a huge human being either. No, it's not. And it's just tough because I remember we saw the stat the other day. It's like Jacob DeGrom's had 30 games where they should be counted as wins, but the Mets have just totally either blown them or literally not scored a run the whole entire game, which is yeah. just – which is just terrible. I mean, his whole entire career, he's pitched 1,183 innings and two outs. And in those 1,183 innings, he has 1,380 strikeouts. So he has 197 more strikeouts than innings pitched, which is, it's just insane. Absolutely insane. Astronomical. Yeah. So do you have any suggestions to the Mets? Do you have anything you want to say? Maybe just apologize to Jacob DeGrom, not because you did anything, but just because as baseball fans, we feel bad. Like it's just tough. It's just tough. Jacob DeGrom, this is as sincere to you as I can be. (laughs) You should be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Zero doubt in my mind that you should be and could be. But the problem is, you have nothing to show for your career but numbers. So if I were you, I would ask for my release. I would find out how to play somewhere else other than the Mets so that I could have something other than numbers, maybe a ring, maybe even a trophy. It doesn't even have to be a ring, just a trophy, maybe some cool shoelaces. But this has got to be the worst support staff behind a pitcher I've ever seen in my life. So Jacob DeGrom, sincerely, I apologize for the New York Mets <laughs> staff, players, and the ability to rally behind you. It is just a shame that they can't help your career. You are great. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, I definitely, definitely got to feel bad for the guy. Just like you said, not ever having a support system behind him. Just just not ever having much help. And it's just, t- it's tough to watch a pitcher that great that could have been considered one of the all time greats if he would have had maybe a couple World Series or some wins, or just because his win to loss ratio is just going to be absolutely screwed as well when like it comes, like he's going to make the Hall of Fame because people will remember like how the Mets just did him no services. But it's just going to be tough because even though his stats are great. Some of them, like his wins and losses, will be affected by how bad the Mets have been in general because he is not going to have nearly as many wins as he should have had. But a guy that is helping his team win right now and a team I'm sure we're both very happy to see winning is Shohei Atani in Anaheim in Los Angeles. The Angels are 7-5 and five right now. They're first out there in the AL West. And this is the first time I'm reading off a stat line where I'm going to have to read off batting stats and pitching stats for the exact same player. So batting-wise, this year so far is hitting 273, which still isn't shabby at all for a guy that's still pitching a 343 on-base percentage, 
or I'm oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Looking at the wrong stat, looking at careers. He's hitting 364 this year in 2021 with four home runs. That's 16 hits and 44 bad attempts. He's got 12 RBIs. He's got 391 on base. He's got a 1.187 OPS on base plus slugging, which great batting numbers, especially for a guy that when he came over was it originally just kind of going to be a pitcher. But then pitching-wise, he doesn't yet have a decision, but he's got a 1.93 ERA so far, and he's only let up one earned run so far this year. And he's just the best. He's the best of both worlds right now. And it's, it's a he, ball just watching him play. It's so much fun. And you said this last week that he may be one of the best baseball players you've ever seen play because he can do it on both sides of the plate. Yeah. No, he is the best hitting pitcher I think I've ever seen in my life. And he's the best fielding batter, pitching batter I've ever seen in my life. It's ridiculous. But that's, like I said last week, I stand with that. If I truly believe that if Mike Trout was not in the major leagues or on the opposite side of baseball, if Shohei Otani plays even slightly better in 2020 or slightly better in 2018 – we are arguing that through the first four seasons, this is the best player in baseball mm-hmm. because he can throw the ball 101 and he can hit the ball 300 or 450 feet and he can hit for average and he does get on base and he does slug the ball. So, I mean, that's what's crazy. And in his four-year career, which one of these years was only 60 games, so he only had a third of the at-bats, he has 51 home runs. That's crazy. Now you throw it to the other side of the ball. Um, let's see, his strikeouts. In only three years of pitching, he has 73 strikeouts. So on pace to literally break records and be one yeah. of the best. He is insane to watch. It's a blast to watch. And you got you find a way to turn him on when he's when you know the angels are playing because he's just fun to watch. And I one my favorite thing so far this season from a baseball stand fan point, take my favorite team out of it just from a fan of baseball was uh, last week or over the weekend, he's standing on second and Mike Trout hits a home run. Otani turns and waves goodbye to the baseball as he trots around to third base. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, <laughs> It's an enjoyment to turn on the TV and be able to see two of the best baseball players in the game, in all-around baseball game, being played together. You know, I mean, watching Shohei hit and then watching Mike Trout hit and then watching Shohei throw a baseball 101 after hitting the day before is insane. Yeah, it, it's definitely it's definitely a lot of fun to watch. It's something – We've never really, and not many people in their life probably have experienced. Maybe people back in like the older days when Babe Ruth was supposedly great at both of those, but nobody obviously talks about his pitching. But we've never really seen like a player in our era that's done what Shohei Otani can do. And like we kind of just said, he's just been bolstering and helping improve this Angels team even more than it is. Like we kind of talked about last week, their first place in the West and their players just all around are playing great. Max Stassi, even though he's been put on the 10-day IL, is still hitting over 300 at 375 right now. Jared Walsh is hitting 324. 
Uh, Jose Iglesias is hitting 256, which may not seem great, but for a defensive heavy shortstop, 256 is not yeah. shabby for Jose yeah, for, Iglesias. For Jose Iglesias, that is really good. Yeah, and then we were just talking about last week, Rendon was only hitting in the 230s. We said, hey, we think he's going to figure it out. He's hitting 290 now, and that's just in a week span, which means that he hit around 350 to 400 over the past week since the last time we recorded this podcast, which is exactly what we thought was going to happen, was he was going to pick it back up and get to where he needs to be. And Mike Trout's obviously hitting 368, which in a 510 on-base percentage, Drew, this guy is getting on-base more than he doesn't get on-base, which is just yeah, it's I mean, insane. That's, that's not even fair. It's not. Like it's, it's literally ridiculous to watch a game of baseball and be like, oh, Mike Trout's playing? Let's watch him get on base. It's not let's watch him hit or let's watch him play. It's let's watch him get on base because yeah. you know he's going to do it more times than he gets out. Yeah, it's just abs- it's it's absolutely crazy. And then just looking at the team in general as well, the offense is top five in almost every single category in the AL. And while the starting pitching is still not the greatest their pitching still not shabby at all either. Like the pitching's a lot, a lot better than it has been in years past. They're number one in the AL and wins. The ERA could use a little bit of work, but it's literally only because of one player. It's because Jamie Barea has a 31.5 ERA because in two innings pitched, because in two innings pitched, he let up seven earned runs. And just the way the formula and equation figures that all out it just kind of screws over their ERA, but their like real ERA should be way below where it's at right now. It's and it's at 4.82. And considering you have a guy on your staff at 31 and a half right now, 4.82 is not terrible. And that could easily be down into like the high threes, probably if you get rid of that 31 from just that one guy. So well, the pitching not's great. It's not great. It's working, but it's the offense that's really doing the magic for this team. And it's just fun to watch this team play because of Mike Trelly. We've talked about before. We want him so bad to get him to the playoffs and to be able to see him in the playoffs. So it's nice to finally see the Angels making a little bit of noise, even though it is only 12 to 13 games into the season. I, I absolutely agree. I think that they make a huge push in – this year, we may see Mike Trout make the playoffs. I don't want to jinx it, but I said it already. <laughs> so, well, the Angels making the playoffs would definitely be a surprise. So would be the Boston Red Sox, who are somehow sitting up top in the AL East right now, which I don't think anybody expected at all, sitting at 7-3 and three right there. First year, and this might just speak to how good of a manager Alex Cora may be because he didn't coach last year because of the cheating but he's back now and they're all of a sudden at seven and three which I'm not saying it is or it isn't but it's definitely something you kind of got to think about but looking at the Red Sox nobody really expected this team to be anything but they're putting it together and that's obviously all contributed to the most part to J.D. Martinez who is hitting 425 right now 452 on base 975 slugging 1.427 on base and slugging OPS along with Christian Vasquez hitting 342, Xander Bogart hitting 361, Franchi Cadero hitting 333. And this team's just surprising people left and right. And Rafael Devers, I think, is going to pick things up too the more we go out through the season. So where do you see this Red Sox team going this year? Well, as it looks currently, they definitely are, are starting hot. I think Verdugo could get hot. 
I think Hunter Renfro needs to turn it on. And even without without them being hot and playing well and even being like quick to the start, they're still playing great baseball. And Bobby Dolbeck, who is only hitting 194, don't sleep on that, okay? I think that that's going to rise before we talk on this next to close to 220. I think he's going to have a great week. He needs a great week. He's trying to catch up and be part of the offense because nobody likes to slouch behind. Behind, I think he's going to play well this next week, and I'm excited to see that. But what I want to mention also, since we had Matthew on, I was just is, about to say that. Um, yeah. <laughs> while we just just mentioning who's at the very bottom, I won't say anything else because I know he's going to listen and we'll Drew, probably talk I about literally, it again. Drew, I kid you not, literally not even five seconds ago before you just said that. I just saw that when I was pulling up the standings and I just texted Matt at 914. I said, last in the AL East, welcome to the club, talking about the Pittsburgh Pirates because he was talking so much crap. And he texted me earlier today because Aaron Judge had two home runs in his first two at-bats earlier today, and they still ended up losing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when when you're getting beat by Toronto consistently, and they're at, they're at number two, the Baltimore Orioles – are ahead of you in the division. Now, I will say, I will say the Rays have not started out, out hot either. I don't necessarily think that this sticks the whole season, but I don't know how much shifting truly is coming our way. But mm-hmm. I, I think Boston starts out hot. They can continue this pace. It's going to be an interesting shape up in the in the AL East, kind of heading into what we expect a great kind of division battle to be. But I'm excited to see J.D. Martinez, like I said uh, earlier, have a bounce back kind of year. He didn't play well last year. He was super upset about it in the offseason, put in a lot of work. And obviously we see that work coming true. And I want to say this, they have a nine-game win streak in Boston right now. Mm Mm-hmm. And Toronto has a two-game win streak, so we'll see how long that those streaks can go. I think both of those will be over by next week, but I'm excited to see how those continue to shape up. And one team I will mention, since we're talking about baseball, is the Detroit Tigers. Still second to last, but specifically a more exciting Tiger to watch than we have seen in a long time outside of Miguel Cabrera is Akil Badu. Yeah. That is a bad man at the bad, plate. Oh, Drew, you could have said bad dude. That would have gone. Yeah, like, but right seeing that, I didn't, I didn't want to do it <laughs> simply for that fact that I knew you were going to say something. <laughs> but even Wilson Ramos has taken charge and is hitting 294, but he has six home runs. Wilson Ramos has never really been known for his power. Um, but, I, I mean, I, I love it. I think Badu is coming on hot, coming on strong, and is showing that he can make a difference. I'm waiting. I'm ready for Miguel to kind of get back and turn it on. You know, he needs to turn it on and get back. So it will be interesting to see how that goes. But I just kind of wanted to touch on Detroit because I'm excited for them and how bad do is playing. Yeah, for sure. So the last thing we're going to touch on here in baseball for this week is 
what in the world is happening in the NL East right now? We just talked about how the Mets are disappointing, but they're somehow still first at four and three right now in the division. Then you have the Phillies who started off five and zero and are now six and five since that five and zero. And then you have the Marlins who are four and six and third. Then the Braves that are still we're trying to wake them up in that fish tank at four and seven. <laughs> But then the Nationals, which really surprises me at the very bottom at three and six, I definitely thought the Marlins would have been at the bottom this year. The Nationals pitching and offense would have at least been able to keep them afloat fighting for a top three spot between New York, Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Washington. And Atlanta's, they're running out of excuses here. And I don't know if you can just attribute to them being cold, maybe starting the season. They just got to <laughs> find their flow. I, I just don't get it. I don't see why Atlanta is a four and seven team right now. Like, what have you I, seen so far throughout the season from this NL East? Uh, I will say this, and I don't like to to talk like this on the podcast, but that division currently is just a shit show. <laughs> Honestly, because the Mets, the way they've been playing, have no business to be at they the top. They don't deserve it at all. They have no business to be at the top. I think when you lean into a pitch – and then you walk off with a walk already this season and you haven't been playing great baseball, you should just automatically be at the bottom once you lean into the pitch. But besides the point, I will say this. Atlanta, with how they've been playing, they got screwed out of the win the other night against the Phillies, which we'll touch Mm -hmm. on in a second. I'm dying to talk about that. Trust me. (laughs) Um, They have the ability to turn around. We know they do. Acuna had a great game this weekend. Uh, Freddie's hitting bombs still. I just think there's a disconnect from winning at the moment. And I wouldn't even say they're cold because they're hitting the ball fine. They're playing fine. They just aren't finishing games. Does that make sense? It's kind of like a basketball game. If it's 91 to 92 at the end and you hit a clutch three, but you miss the two-pointer, you can't – I mean, you can't do that to an extent. You just can't finish. Yeah. So, Atlanta is just struggling to finish games right now. And I think that once they figure out – I think Mike Soroka coming back is a huge piece. That's going to be exciting to watch. Um, but just – they'll turn it around. I haven't lost faith in that pick yet. Mm-hmm. So, I'm um, – It'll 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 turn around. I do believe that. I think we could see a run from them soon. Just kind of go on a tear from four and seven to maybe even ten and seven or ten and eight. I don't want to say that they're going to go on a six game win streak because it's extremely unlikely. But yeah. they are playing the Marlins right now, and the Marlins have proven that they can beat. They're scrappy Braves. But they've proven they can beat the Braves in even previous years. And Adam Duvall is having a heck of a series, if you will, so far. Yeah, that's that's your former boy, Adam Duvall. Yeah, well, that's he played in Atlanta. I mean, Duvall just somehow figures out a way to put the ball in the seat and stay relevant just enough. Yeah, you know. But I'm excited to watch that. Barlins twice this week so they're on a, a three-game losing streak but right now they're losing again in the bottom of the sixth do i yeah. think they pulled that that game out maybe 
I think if they pull that game out, we could see a huge, a huge run of games knowing that they play the Cubs coming up who have not shown to be a strong team. The Yankees, they play on the 20th and 21st, which I'm not too excited to watch that just due to the fact that I'm not going to pay attention to that series too much. But I do see them running into a problem with the Diamondbacks. But that's the first one in the next eight games that I see them kind of struggling with. What that's happening right now with the Philadelphia Phillies. So starting off their season, they get a full three-game sweep of the Atlanta Braves. And then after that, they take two out of three from the New York Mets. And then after that, they lose two out of three to the Atlanta Braves. And then again, lose the next two to the Mets. And they're currently losing two to one in the bottom of the seventh. And we'll talk about like kind of what Drew just said. We'll talk about the one Braves game here coming up. But the Phillies looked like they might have like I was never too high on them, but it looks like they may have figured a thing out, a thing or two out in those first two series. But I guess not. And I guess you can also contribute it to that. They've literally played only two teams so far this year. Like, I don't know how many other teams you can say have only played two other teams so far this year. But after watching them play those first like four or five, six games, I'm just really surprised that they've fallen off as quick as they already have. Because I thought, like, not that they were going to be great, but we all kind of talked about how competitive this division was going to be. And all of a sudden, they just seem to be falling right back down the tubes where they were. What do you think about Philly? I mean, Philly's always going to be a team that hangs around just to disappoint, to, to give you a little bit of hope, to disappoint you again. So, I mean, I'm not too high on them. I wouldn't say that they're a terrible baseball team. I wouldn't say that they're an exciting baseball team. I think they have the best catcher in baseball. I think they have a great team put around him, but I don't know if it's a team to make a strong, consistent push. That's mm-hmm. why I think we see so many ups and downs with them. But, I mean, it kind of is what it is. It's still early. They may turn it around and start being that number one, consistent, come challenge us team or they could play like I think they might and fall to like third or fourth place in that division and then rally closer to the end. Yeah, for sure. And I just want to give an update. Matthew's just texted me back about the Yankees and said he's, he's preaching the same thing he preached during his interview was guys pump the brakes. We're only 11 games in. Guess what, Matt? We're actually 12 games in now and you guys are five and seven. So don't come at me with the whole 11 games in, Matt. I know you're a tinge bit maybe worried in there. So now we're going to talk about baseball replay. Instant replay and terrible. Instant replay sports we've seen are just, it's not working great. And then we see in baseball just the absolute worst call. I can't tell you. It's been so long since I've seen a call this bad. So in the recent Phillies and Braves game, the last game of um, the last call, D.D. Gregorius hits a very short fly ball in to left field and Alex Bohm tags up, takes off towards the plate. Foot literally doesn't even touch the bag. They replay it. Somehow there's not enough evidence to overturn it and they still call him safe. And I know Drew's got a lot he wants to get off his chest right here. So let's hear it, Drew. Give it to him. I gave it to him from Michael Conforto last week. You give it to the instant replay system this week. Uh, it's terrible. The last call that I have seen so bad from start to finish, then the replay in the Alec Bohm 
slide was made by, you could probably guess, Angel Hernandez. So we have put this in place to make plays like that easy and not allow umpires to mess up the game anymore. But guess what? We have found a way to let them mess it up (laughs) even more. Because my thing is, it's it's an a not an opinionated call, but and feel free to t- tell me if I'm wrong or tell me if I'm wrong or stop me in this sentence. I'll listen to you. But if the call on the field on that slide was out, and they go to the review, they would have still called him out. Yeah, they are too afraid to overturn a play. And I, I, I think that's where I run into the biggest problem in my head is if he's out, he's out. Mm-hmm. If he's safe, he's safe. But I would almost all the time, every single time, if the ball beats you there to the plate or to the bag or anywhere, you should be called out and then go back to the replay. Because if it's clear and I just missed it, then safe. We'll fix it. But if you call me safe and I am clearly out, that's a problem if you can't fix that on the replay. That's what the replay is there for, is so there's no more big-time screw-ups in the games. And that was a yeah. game-changing play because they won by one run. I just dislike the fact that we let things like that go and it's not talked about again or we don't hear about it again. And they're just like, well, it was kind of a blown play, so – we're going to put some new things in to try and fix it. The new thing you should put in is a better replay system with better umpires to be able to call those plays correctly because it's, yeah. uh, that's why they're there. Every stadium has one for the ability of fixing a blown call. That call mm-hmm. on Sunday night was a blown call that cost the Braves a game and it needs to be looked at, fixed and taken into account. Yeah. I- it it's just tough. Like I don't understand how you make a call that bad. Like go over it and look at it, and spend that time to look at it in the top of the ninth inning, and then come back with the exact same call and not changing it. It it's it's just it's a bad look for the MLB. I think on May seventh at seven twenty the next time Philadelphia goes to Atlanta, they should start the game in the top of the ninth inning. Zero outs, zero guys on, and just restart the game from the ninth inning and see what happens. <laughs> and because that's just, I don't think it's a fair loss at all for Atlanta. And I mean, the crowd let him know, which I'm happy the crowd let him know down there, Atlanta, because those umpires definitely deserved it. And it, it's just tough that these, it's just these leagues, they add this replay and you think it's going to make everything better but they somehow every single time find a way just to make it worse. Like you see with the, like you see with the NBA, they use replay literally on like every single call that happens in the last two minutes of the game. And the last two minutes literally takes like 20 to 30 minutes to happen because they review everything and they don't even always get it right. And it's extremely unnecessary. And the NFL, we see blatant calls just, just, just as bad just as bad as the MLB, if not worse sometimes. And then we see the MLB and it's just, dude, it's just frustrating. As you can tell, like it's just hard getting words out because it's just frustrating how bad something can be when we're all sitting there watching it on TV and being like, Oh, this is clear as day. And then these officials come out and they're not changing the call or they're changing the call to something that's obviously wrong. It's just frustrating. Yeah. And that's, that's not even 
a case of like the worst in my opinion, because yeah, it was a tough play and it should have been easy. But and I'll I'll mention this because yes, Jesse Winker plays on my team. He hit a home run against the Diamondbacks that hit a chair. It hit a chair. <laughs> was called a ground rule double, which doesn't even make sense to me. It hit a chair and bounced back into play. How does a ball with the trajectory heading out of the fence or out of the park hit a chair bounce back into play and you give him a ground rule double that makes no sense so let's take it to replay right that's the logical thing to do that's what it's there for and they messed it up still calling him a double or a ground rule double that's terrible yeah it is awful it is a system put into place to make plays like that almost non-existent anymore mm-hmm. it's to make them easier to call it's uh, it's basically there to say the umpires it's okay to mess up we got your back we'll fix it but now the whole system is failing that's where the problem is is there's no chain of almost responsibility like the people that were reviewing the play the guys that reviewed it they just called him called him safe and went home after the game they don't care that's the yeah. problem when do we as a league, well, obviously not we, but when do like the leagues, when do they start fining referees and officials and umpires like they do players for making bad decisions on the field, on the court, wherever on the rink, wherever they're playing? When do we start finally finding officials for when they make bad calls to teach them a lesson, do you think? Because I think, I think that's what's going to be most effective because if it's coming out of their paycheck for making these just abysmal, terrible calls – I don't know that it necessarily changes before something monetary gets involved. Yeah. uh, It's tough to me to find umpires and referees. What would be your solution then? I guess like to try and fix my, my personal solution. My biggest thing that I would do is take the college baseball approach is instead of having the umpires go in the uh, dugouts and look at the screen I would have somebody and I'll use the SEC replay booth is in Birmingham, Alabama. I have loved some of the calls that they have overturned, fixed, held. They have done very well with that. But Mm -hmm. the umpires don't get to make those calls when they're overturned or they go to the booth to review it. It is the people in the booth that gets to do that. You know what I'm saying? So we use Birmingham as an example. In that game on Sunday night, if Boehm slides in, and we'll use a neutral location because Birmingham is in Georgia. Or it's in Alabama. Alabama. Yeah. (laughs) We'll use – we'll say Boo, North Carolina. If that is a place that they go to to look for it, there's no ties to either team. There's no localness to either team. They just say safe or out. That is the easiest way to do it is take a college baseball approach, go to a centralized location for the entire NLB, give each division a place. The NL East gets a place. The NL Central gets a place. And just pick one for every location, every division, and just run your certain replays through those booths and through those studios so that they can pick in the studios because it Uh saves your umpires from, one, making bad calls, Two, having to listen to the fans about those calls, it saves the fans, the players, and the umpires a lot of heartache against each other when if it comes out and they say, we're going to take this approach instead, it saves everybody a lot of trouble and a lot of problems. 
I would say go to a central location and have one person review the plays from in a studio sitting behind a computer watching the game. Yeah, I just think if you just kind of spread it out a little bit more, like maybe you have like one guy for like one review department for the East Coast, one for like the ALNL East, two for the or one for the ALNL Central, then one for the NLAL yeah, yeah. West, just something yeah, I mean, like any, that. Any way you break it down like that or division, anything works for that example. I just think a centralized location per East Coast, Central, West Coast, something like that is the way to go. Yeah, for sure. So before we head into our picks, do you have anything else baseball wise you wanted to get off your chest? Um, I mean, I, I, I could think of something if you would <laughs> like me to. Oh, I will say this, Trevor Bauer. I haven't heard the latest on it, but is it oh, under, yeah. under investigation yeah. for cheating? And as yeah. I have said before, I don't know if I've said it on here or if I've said it to you, that man is 100% cheating. Now I'm not, now I'm not, I'm not saying that he tries to hide it either. And we all know this. I had a talk with my roommate from last year, Brett Bishop about it. He has done research. He has looked. If you're going to go after Trevor Bauer for cheating, then you have to go look at Kershaw, look at Cole. You have to go look at all those guys, Verlander, uh, Granke. Those guys have had massive jumps in their RPMs since they entered the league to their yeah. Cy Young leagues or to their Cy Young winning years, to the playoff years, to the world series years, those got Trevor Bauer literally tweeted to Rob Manfred in the MLB on Twitter and said, if you're not going to stop the guys from doing it, why should I not do it? Went and did research on how to do it and went out last year and won a Cy Young. <laughs> That's all I'm saying, but I'm not sure that he's hiding it. Like he's not going to be, subtweeting us later or tweeting and saying, Hey, why did you say that? Cause he's, yeah. he did it. He's done it publicly. He's done the research. He's done. It's like Bryson DeChambeau. They both did the research. They found out how to hit the ball farther or throw it faster. And they went out and did it. Yeah. One is cheating. One is not, you yeah, know? For- so that's the difference. He doesn't care if he, if Rob Manfred and the MLB finds out because they're going to suspend him for two games and he's going to be back. He's not even going to miss a start. <laughs> yeah <laughs> why would he definitely, care that was definitely a wild story because i follow him on instagram too and he isn't really calm he's posted twice i think two posts since those allegations came out and he hasn't like mentioned any of them or anything in either of them yeah. or on his instagram story or anything so that'll definitely be interesting to see how that plays out because that'll be one of the most hypocritical things i see of all oh, time yeah. if he is if he does end up terrible being a cheater so that's now going to lead us into our picks of the week where we're going to do two NBA, two MLB, two NHL, and two college baseball games. One thing I will say about picks also from last week, the records for the last week's first documented is they're, they're close. I will yeah. say that I, I did not have a great week at three and five <laughs> and Steve broke even at four and four. <laughs> there we go there we go that's what you like to see right there all right so you just heard drew give us the rundown on how our records are looking so far for our picks of the week so going into the picks for this week we're going to start off in the mlb so as we did before we're going to pick by series and the first series i'm picking is the st louis cardinals going to the philadelphia phillies I'm going to take the cards in this because the Phillies, which we talked about earlier, are in a bit of a slide right now, kind of going back down. 
the NLE standings a bit, and I think the slide will continue. And then the second series I'm going to pick is the Los Angeles Dodgers going to the San Diego Padres. I mean, we see what the Dodgers are doing. They're 9-2 and two right now. Their team's just unstoppable. We've talked about the roster that they have. So I'm going to rock with the Dodgers in that series. Yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely something that you can't be upset about. And those are some good picks. Um, the first one that I have is the White Sox versus the Red Sox. The White Sox are kind of starting to get lost in the dust there. They're starting to look forward to the future. I'm ready to see them turn around. But on the other hand, the Red Sox are 9-3 and three and do not want to give that momentum up. So I'm going to go with the Red Sox in this series. Um, also, the second one that I have is the Royals versus the Blue Jays. Both second-place teams. One is 6-6 six and six and the other is 6-4. and four. Um, I think the Royals are a beast in the AL Central. I think that they could really make a big push this year. As I talked about when we talked that big episode of baseball, uh, mm -hmm. the Blue Jays, I think they may be getting a little bit lucky right now, um, personally. Uh, Ryu is definitely pitching well, but I think the Royals just may have a little bit too much. I'm going to take the Royals in this series. Um, and I'll jump over to the NBA. I have the Knicks versus Mavs. Obviously, I'm going to take the Knicks. <laughs> I mean, if you've listened at all, I'm not going to go against the Knicks ever. Um, I think that they're trying to make a late playoff push, which we could see from them in those play-in games especially. So I'm going to go with the Knicks. Um, on this other hand, I actually have the Hawks versus the Pacers. The Hawks are in fourth place. It could really, really make a difference in how we as fans view that team this year and how they started versus how they finish. And the mm -hmm. Pacers are not a great team in the middle of the pack. So I'm going to ride with the Hawks in that game. I think there's a great, great place for momentum to be made there. Yeah, for sure. I can see that happening. It'll be interesting to see how that East plays out and if the Hawks can kind of solidify that four spot or if they may fall right back down, kind of like what uh, Charlotte just did, even though there's this due to injury. So the first game I'm going with this Friday, April 16th, the Los Angeles Clippers are traveling to the Philadelphia 76ers, which is a great game. Can't wait to watch that. And I'm going to take the Philadelphia 76ers in that game. I just don't think the Clippers really have a response to Joel Embiid because you can put Kawhi Leonard and if Paul George plays, you could put him too on uh, Ben Simmons, but you can't put either of them on Joel Embiid. And Ben Simmons, in my opinion, is the best defensive player in the NBA this year. And he's going to be able to lock up Kawhi Leonard or Paul George, whichever one he picks whenever he wants. And so the second game I'm going to go with is the Brooklyn Nets at the Miami Heat on Sunday at 3.30. And I'm pretty sure that game is going to be on ABC as well. Nice primetime game there. And I'm going to take the Miami Heat in that one just for the fact that I don't think most of the Brooklyn Nets players will play. We see tonight when they were playing the Clippers and we thought this would be a fun, exciting game. But Kyrie is literally their only guy playing. Kevin Durant, James Harden, LaMarcus Aldridge, and Blake Griffin are playing. And James Harden still won't be healthy by this weekend for that game. I doubt Kevin Durant will play. I don't really know what's going on with him. And who knows if LaMarcus Aldridge and Blake Griffin will play. And that team's just not totally like bought in to the regular season while Jimmy Butler has this Miami Heat team firing on all cylinders going 100% in the regular season, which is why I'm going to take the Heat to win that game in the upset. So now moving over to hockey. Uh, the first game I'm going to take is happening tomorrow. 
Philadelphia Flyers are visiting my Pittsburgh Penguins. I'm going to take my Penguins, as I talked about yes or earlier in the interview. Um, we're eight and two in our last 10. The Flyers have kind of been falling apart lately. And I just think the Penguins pull that one out. And then the next game we're going to talk about, or I'm going to pick, is the Edmonton Oilers going to the Winnipeg Jets. And kind of like what Matt said, he really kind of convinced me on this one because he talked about how the Oilers aren't like really necessarily full built out team. They're very star heavy up top, but their goalies and defenders just aren't there. So for that reason, I'm going to take the Winnipeg Jets over the Oilers, who are a much better all around team. All right. And then I'm going to finish up my college baseball picks, and then Drew's going to give his NHL and college baseball. So the first series I'm picking is Ole Miss embarrassed me last week, and I'm not going to let that happen again. So I'm picking Mississippi State to beat Ole Miss this week, <laughs> which once again isn't a surefire pick. Yeah, that's a that's a bold, bold move. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. And then my last pick I'm going to have is the University of Pittsburgh beating the University of North Carolina. Two schools I have a lot of ties to, whether it's growing up in North Carolina with friends going there or family going to Pitt and being in Pitt for a very long time, too, or in Pittsburgh, I'm sorry. And Pittsburgh's had a great year. They're not typically a baseball school, but they're 19th in the country, depending which ranking you look at. Um, they've been hanging around the top 25 all season, and it's just it's been cool to watch them do something. So I want to see if they can go out there and uh, beat North Carolina. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely – definitely think it's it's a good pick it's bold it's strategic but we'll see how it works um i have for my nhl first game is the islanders versus the bruins i don't know too much about hockey so the islanders are just <laughs> gonna ride with them um and then the lightning versus the hurricane i know that they're one and two out of the hurricanes are one but i think the lightning it's gonna be a great game i'm gonna ride with the lightning in that mm-hmm. um and then in my first matchup of the weekend, uh, TCU versus Oklahoma State baseball. Um, Oklahoma State and TCU are currently, if I'm not incorrect, they are 13 and 14 and 12 and 13 in the college baseball ranking that I look at. Um, I don't know which one you guys look at. There's 37 of them. So um, I look at the one that has them at 12 and 13. Um, Oklahoma State just got back Carson McCustler, McCuster, um, who is a six foot eight, two hundred and fifty pound super senior, who did not play the first nineteen games, but in the first ten that he has played, he's hitting three thirty three, three doubles, three home runs, a triple, and eleven RBIs in ten games. So definitely a difference maker. I think it's an interesting thing to look at due to how big of an interest or uh, um, a difference maker he could be. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing that I have is that Tennessee or TCU is just a great baseball program to begin with, always have been, and probably always will be. But I think that I'm going to take TCU in this game. I think they're a better all-around team. I think we may see Carson have his first big stump in the road, if you will, to – the season. So I'm going to take TCU in that. My second one, I actually joked with you about this before we started. I have Vanderbilt versus Tennessee. Okay. And Vanderbilt last weekend dropped two to Georgia. I think that they could keep falling. I think that this may be a week where they have to make a stop or teams 
teams, coaches, scouts, the people that make decisions in college baseball could start questioning if it was just the beginning of the season, like hot streak. Um, they also put in their bid for the hosting the regional and super regionals for this year, which could be interesting. It's a neat ballpark. Um, Tennessee is a great, a, a great program this year. Uh, currently in some number three, some number four, they beat Florida last week. Uh, they take the series from Florida, which is a great, great lead in to uh, Vanderbilt. They have been on the climb all season. Tony Vitello has done a great job this year. Um, I'm going to go with Tennessee this weekend. Wow. A little bold pick. I'm wow. going to go Tennessee over Vandy this weekend okay. due to how last weekend was, how Tennessee has been playing. I think the game that we see Vandy win is the Jack Leiter game. Um, I don't think he has 10 plus K's this week though. I think that that streak ends this week. Okay. Yeah, no, definitely some good picks. There are some interesting picks for sure. That Tennessee Vanderbilt series will definitely be something to keep an eye on. So that's going to wrap up episode number 14 of the pickup. We want to thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for continuing to uh, viewing and following the Instagram page. And let's keep that train going. If we can, we're going to keep putting out quick pits. We're going to keep just being active on social media and hopefully be able to involve evolve into doing more stuff on social media as well. We definitely have a good time doing it. So like I said, that's episode number 14. We will see you guys next week. And for Drew Hartman, I'm Stephen Biddix and we're clocking out.